Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, human beings of all varieties and degrees, welcome to Mind Milk Theory, a podcast about niche interest nerdery. My name is Jim and this podcast feed will mainly consist of brief discussions taken from my notes app, basically talking about whatever topic has been preoccupying my thoughts recently. I hope you enjoy it. It's not going to be weekly, it's just going to be whenever the mood strikes me and when I can find a few minutes away from the children. (laughs) This episode, Holy Graffiti, a story about witch marks, demon traps and everyday magic. So what are we talking about here? We're talking about, well, medieval Christian apotropaic magic. Now, that sounds like a niche subject right there. I'll say it again, medieval Christian apotropaic magic. I don't know about you, but I hear that and I want to leap straight into that exotic and strange sounding word, apotropaic. And we'll get there, I promise. But first we need to define some of the terms with which we're already familiar so that we can understand them in the context of today's discussion. The medieval period or Middle Ages describes a time in European history between the Romans and the Renaissance i.e. between the 5th and 15th centuries. It includes the expansion of uh, Christian and Muslim faiths, a vast increase in the movement of people, and it includes crusades and crowns. Today we're talking about mid to late medieval practices. It's about the thoughts, beliefs and actions of everyday people, the things they got up to while kings, popes and powers clashed incessantly. And it has to do with magic. Magic. Let's define that term next. So magic is a collectible card game from the 90s that's main appeal is in retaining players through sunk costs. Oh, no, sorry, that's not what I meant. Uh, magic, that's the belief in the manipulation of the natural world through arcane rituals and the subduing of supernatural forces. In a modern definition, magic is an attempt to wield a power which lays outside of both science and religion. Today, For most people, magic is nothing more than a stagecraft. It's illusion and entertainment. The magicians of today are impressive because the mechanics of their tricks are definitely natural, but they are obscure. However, at the same time, there are still people out there practicing spells and magic craft that they genuinely believe has supernatural properties and efficacy in the real world. The stage magician claims no marvellous supernatural art in his tricks. Not really. But the medium does, for instance, and is happy to take your money while they do it. There are many, for instance, even in the UK, who self-identify as witches and claim a heritage hundreds and possibly thousands of years old. And with respect to people who treat that as a spiritual practice... I hasten to unnecessarily add that the allusion to history is not the same as historical lineage and much in those practices is a 20th century construct. That's worth mentioning because I want to draw a line between uh, pagan occult or esoteric practices with which listeners may be familiar and the esoteric practices of the past because the similarities are mostly cosmetic and that isn't intended as... um, you know, as shade on uh, any of today's practices. But when we're talking about the Middle Ages, we're talking about something in the same category, but manifest in a different way. We use the same words 
and their similarities, but the two are different. For instance, the idea of a witch as a human magical practitioner didn't fully solidify till the early modern period. Go back in time and a witch was a wholly supernatural creature, a kind of giant screeching owl that only occasionally took human form. A witch was a monster, not a person. Asterix, bottom of page, check out references to screech owls and night monsters in Hebrew scripture for more cryptozoological fun. Today, there are plenty who will tell you and evidence that magic is not real. But that wasn't part of the discussion in the medieval period. Nobody doubted that magic was real then. They just didn't all like it. So magic, back then in medieval times, didn't mean brooms or rabbits in hats, but it did have a potent presence. Mostly it was feared it would be considered a heresy, after all, to use magic to grab yourself a miracle and bypass God. And that's what things came down to in the end. There was a lot of debate over what spectacular happenings were miraculous and therefore holy, and what was marvellous and therefore heretical perversion, a grabbing of power for oneself. In the 11th century, the discourse around magic seemed to mostly revolve around the church, denouncing specific practices and individuals. Magic wasn't so much a practice, but a charge brought against people. By the 15th, however, there were books and magicians and experts, some of whom were even in the church. You see, in the Middle Ages, people not only believed in a vast and populated unseen spiritual world, but they also believed that there was secret knowledge and aspects to every part of life and every mundane object. To learn about the arcane nature of the world was not in itself a bad thing. Nature comes from God, after all, and so knowledge of its hidden sides was a virtuous pursuit for anyone serious about their faith. It was the wielding of that knowledge for one's own ends that was dangerous. Magic was often to do with communication with the spirit realm. One might pray to a spirit or have a vision of Christ and be called holy. But it was also believed that demons could be conjured, summoned and bent to human will through the use of magical arts and hidden languages. This created a grey area. Even holy people sometimes spoke using strange languages. The Bible speaks about praying in the spirit, in tongues no one can understand. A Hildegard was a famous Christian mystic who professed to speak in a secret language. So often it was very difficult to tell the difference between someone touched by the divine and a heretic in league with the devil. And often people could be hailed as holy one day and condemned the next. Take Joan of Arc, for example. Then there were the everyday folk. Ordinary people who had to live, work and make their way in a world where religion and magic dominated the consciousness. But we couldn't all go and be mystics, because that required sponsorship. What then for us? What magic do we get? How do we protect ourselves from the dark spiritual forces? To answer that, we get to define that big sexy word, apotropaic. So this is a form of magic that is so casually employed that it is closer to vague superstition or tradition than a capital M magical practice as we imagine it today. 
It's about the use of symbols, charms or gestures intended to ward off evil or bad influences. Did an older relative put up a horseshoe in their house? Magic. Have you ever knocked on wood? Magic. Charms on your bracelet? That's magic, baby. A controversial statement for a lot of people. A crucifix on your necklace? That's very close to apotropaic practice. In the Middle Ages, apotropaic magic was all the rage. You saw it used in cathedrals in the form of grotesques and in homes in the use of arcane symbols scratched into the wood of the building itself. A famous symbol you might find painted on a house or scratched into the mantle would be a pentagram, which at the time was a stuffy Christian symbol, long before it had been appropriated by occult groups and metal music. Well, you might find a daisy flower pattern that represents heaven's sun, or you might find the initials of the Virgin Mary stylized and scratched in to keep devils and witches away. Patterns of lines with no end were also popular. It was believed that demons would become confused and trapped, looking for where the line ends. These markings are sometimes referred to as demon traps. Sometimes they're called witch marks because they're meant to keep the witches and other spirits out. There's a lot to explore in the design and symbolism of grotesques and the use of apotropaic magic in places of worship or in the houses of the rich. But that isn't nearly as fascinating to me as the democratic, anyone-can-do-it folk traditions of scratching arcane symbols into door frames and into the timber work of your house. And I should mention, as most of these symbols alluded to religious figures and ideas, I guess it isn't magic at all by some measures, and wouldn't have been in the 12th century, for instance, when you could borrow an amulet from your local vicar. But it was magic, and bad magic at that, by the 15th century when inquisitors looked for the same items as proof of heresy. And the other thing that's interesting to me is how aspects of this practice linger today, and yet it's not something we necessarily recognise, and arguably things we don't regard as magic may have been regarded that way back then. Like the idea of dressing for success. Describe that to Augustine and he'd probably call you a wardrobe mancer. We haven't abandoned this magic, we've just changed its name. One of the strangest symbols that came to be used as a glyph of warding was the board for the game Nine Men's Morris. That's a board game you can play, a board game that was played throughout the Middle Ages and that has no obvious religious roots. Though some historians have suggested connections, there is no direct reference to it from contemporary sources that I'm aware of. It fascinates me that the game gathered a deep symbolic meaning through a folk tradition that is not recorded and is now being completely lost. Perhaps they were responding to the powerful experience of playing a game. The simulated and contained world of a game feels intense in the moment, but as soon as it's completed and the game is finished, the pieces go back to being mundane objects. There's a certain magic in that experience. We can't know why Nine Men's Morris became a magical symbol, but it does demonstrate the powerful human ability to read meaning into the mundane, to create significance out of thin air, just by virtue of our imagination and consideration of that thing. 
And perhaps that's the real magic, the transformation of the mundane into the supernatural that takes place entirely within our own minds. Thanks for listening, everyone. You know, if you want to know more about Nine Men's Morris, including how to make your own board and what Shakespeare had to say about the game, you can check out a pretty lengthy video I did on my YouTube channel recently. You can find links to that on my website, jimlockie.com. Stay safe out there. Love you. Bye.